I wonder if, as you look back over your life, if you have been privileged enough to say that you have been loved by someone whose love has never wavered, regardless of what you have done, how you have behaved, where you've gone, how bad you've been, if you have been privileged to be the recipient of an unfailing love, even though all of us as humans fail in our desire to love others, but if you've been the recipient of a parent's love or a friend or whoever, who you look back and you go, man, there have been times when they should have just dropped me like a hot rock. They should have just given up on me. And yet to this day, their love is unfaltering for me. I want you to know you are very blessed to have been the recipient of that kind of love. Still, as I said, all human love, even at its best, is still faulty. But there is one love that all of us have the opportunity to experience that never wavers. It never falters. It never lessens for you. And that is the love of God through Jesus Christ. Someone once said, and it took me a while when I was younger to actually really believe this and know biblically that it's true. But someone said, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. That's incredible love. In our study through the Bible, we've been for the last few weeks in the little book of Hosea. And I would encourage you to turn there again. We finish up Hosea this morning. We saw last week in chapters 4 through 10, which is the middle section of the book, we looked at kind of a hard message. We looked at God's impending judgment. Today we come to the last four chapters of this book. We'll be in chapters 11 through 14. And thankfully today, what we see in these chapters overall is God's promised hope. As I've mentioned, what's true, what's been true already of the entire book of Hosea is also true of these last four chapters. They're written in uh, a unique way. That's putting it nicely. Uh, it's an odd way, frankly, and it takes a bit of effort to really uh, put this book together. As I said, it was kind of a, a poetic style book, and you know these poets, these artists, they're strange people. <laughs> so the best way I can try to draw a picture for you of these last four chapters is, is this. The two outside chapters, if you can picture them as maybe books on a shelf, <clears throat> the two outside uh, chapters, chapters 11 and 14, describe God's incredible undying love for his rebellious people. The two inner chapters of those four, chapters 12 and 13, sum up the sins of Israel. And this whole book has really been about God's broken heart over the sins of his people. And so we come to this last section, and it's 
quite obvious that the way this is written, um, I think even Hosea is feeling the heaviness of all the judgment that he's had to describe that's coming on these people if they don't repent. And in this last section, he sums up all of the sins of Israel, the judgments that are about to come. He sums all of that up in the two middle sections in 12 and 13. But he bookends that in 11 and 14 with the love of God. And I'm glad he did it that way, actually. It gives us a beautiful picture. So what I want to do first is look at the two inner chapters there of those four chapters, 12 and 13. And as I look through the book of Hosea and I survey all the um, charges that God brought against his people. We saw that last week, the the courtroom setting where God is bringing really legal charges against his people for breaking his law. I think all of those charges can maybe be summarized into four uh, categories, four areas of sin that you and I also need to consider to see how we're doing in these areas. The first area, number one, is simply that they had not practiced love towards God. This was the first thing they were guilty of. God had loved them with an everlasting love, but they had not loved God back with that same kind of love. They had rejected God's love. They had gone after other loves. The Lord has been faithful to maintain his loyal love to the people of Israel. But Israel had failed to show him that pure, single-minded love. The second thing that God pointed out, the second charge brought against them was they had not kept the covenant commands of God, commandments of God. They were called to be people of justice, but they had become people of violence. They had been called to be people who love their neighbors, but they were taking advantage of their neighbors. They were people who had been called to care for the poor and needy, but we've seen throughout this book of Hosea, they are using the poor and needy, abusing them, selling them as slaves in some cases. And Hosea reveals that Israel has failed in all of those areas. They're not walking in the commandments of God. They're living according to their own commandments. The third charge that God brought against Israel was that they had made alliances with the nations around them. When when God took these people out of slavery in Egypt and he planted them in this promised land and gave them everything that they needed, He wanted them, and he expressed this over and over again so far in the Old Testament, he wanted them to depend on him solely for their strength, for their protection, for their provision. God said, I will bless you. I will protect you. I will heal you. I will provide for you if you keep me first place in your heart. But instead, we see in the book of Hosea, I touched on it a little bit last week, instead we see that God's people turned to Egypt for help. God's people turned to Assyria for protection. How ironic. 
that Assyria is the one, one of the ones who's going to come and obliterate them in a few years. Uh, they formed alliances with these other countries, Hosea tells us, and they believed that, it, that, that doing that would make them strong and safe and prosperous. But their only true helper was the God of heaven. God had reiterated this so many times. They had forgotten Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, that says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. In other words, they're trusting in their military might. We would say today, if we were writing this, some trust in tanks and planes and missiles. But we will trust in the name of the Lord, our God. That's what God wanted all along. When challenges came, God's people looked to these other nations and to earthly kings to help them instead of looking to God, their one true king. And then the fourth charge that God brought against them was they had turned to other gods. This was the most grievous of all. After all, this is the very first of the Ten Commandments. Everything else falls, uh, rises or falls upon this. You shall have no other gods before me. Part of making an alliance with another nation in that day was that you had to agree to bring that nation's gods into your land and worship those gods along with whatever other gods you wanted to worship. And in so doing, these other pagan nations were helping to ensure uh, loyalty to them. I mean, I read that and I can't help but think of Constantine in the 300s who uh, institutionalized the church and established what became known as the Church of Rome. Um, people say, well, what's the problem with the Catholic Church? I don't have anything against any Roman Catholic. It's the system that they're caught up in that's absolutely uh, devilish. See, what Constantine did in the 300s, he had that vision, you know, the Battle of Milvane Bridge, and he stared into the sunset and apparently got a vision. Uh, you stare into the sunset, you might get a vision too, but I'm not sure I'd act on it. But he basically prayed to the God of the Bible and said, God, if you help us win this battle, then we'll worship you. They won the battle. And so Constantine then declared that Christianity was the religion of Rome, which sounds great, except that what he did was he took all the Roman gods and he put them inside the church. And the people came, they were required to come to church. Even the pagans were required to come. And now they're inside this church with the, with the format of a big guy standing up there on a big podium with a big hat, very intimidating, basically saying, we'll, we'll do the thinking for you. You just listen to us. Don't ever do that to any pastor. I've told you, including me. Don't ever trust me. Don't ever trust anybody standing in any pulpit unless you verify it for yourself. 
You see, and so, uh, I mean, that has continued today and misled millions of well-meaning people. This is exactly what Israel had done. They had turned to these other nations. They had made alliances with them, basically saying, uh, you know, the, the, the underlying thing here for them was uh, these are big nations, Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and so on. So let's buddy up with them. Let's get friendly with them and maybe they won't hurt us. Don't ever negotiate with the enemy. They will stab you in the back. Maybe even stab you in the chest while they're smiling at you. Don't ever negotiate with the enemy. So this was a fatal mistake that they made. Israel was found guilty by God in these four areas. But I have to ask, how in the world did God's people, who had God's law, who had been blessed by God, saved by God, protected by God, how did those people end up in such a horrible predicament? Well, the roots of this go all the way back to King Solomon, generations before. God had appointed King Solomon. Uh, as the king of Israel, and things started out great. We read in uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 12, Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. Woohoo! Here we go. It's going to be great. But just a few verses later, in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of of David. Uh, I had to go back and look to, to kind of get the timing on this, but I taught you on this verse in April of last year. And when I reached this verse, I said to you, tuck that away because that's going to be important in a little while. Uh, you're going to see that this decision, this seemingly innocent decision to make an alliance with the, the Pharaoh of Egypt and to marry his daughter and bring her into the king's household. That decision was the beginning of the downfall of Israel. And here we are generations later, and we see what has come out of that decision. Sadly, before the end of Solomon's life, we saw that he was going around setting up pagan shrines to worship at, to please all of his wives. And now here we are in Hosea, generations later, and that act of disobedience way back in Solomon's day has led to the corruption of God's people. And God is now having to purge this sin out of the land with these harsh judgments that we've been reading about. How sad this is. What a sad commentary that God led his people out of bondage into the promised land, gave them everything they could have wanted. And their response to him was, thanks, we'll take it from here. Thank goodness you and I would never do that. We are so stinking blessed in this country. We forget so easily. This is why you should read 
history. This is why you should read biographies of people who've come before to be reminded of what's out there. Not far. It's out there. People are suffering and hurting and dying every day that you and I go through life whistling a happy tune. We are so blessed. And have we not, as a nation, said to God, we'll take it from here? God's intent for his people. And again, we see this throughout the Old Testament. We've seen it many times so far in our study. His intent for these people was clear. It was so that they would live godly lives in front of the other nations. God said specifically so that those nations will look at you, at what a different holy people you are, and they will have no other choice but to praise God and come to know him themselves. God wanted his glory to be spread to the ends of the earth through these people. And now look where they are. There was a time in Israel when Israel was walking in the commands of the Lord and they were feared by other nations. But now that testimony, that influence is gone. Um, Look at an example of this in Hosea chapter 13, verse 1. Now remember, Ephraim is just another, it was a tribe, but it was was used as just a term for Israel in general. When Ephraim spoke, people trembled. He was exalted in Israel, but he became guilty of Baal worship and died. Now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from their silver according to their skill. Verse 3, therefore they shall be like the morning mist and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown off the threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. At one time, People literally trembled in the presence of Israel because God's presence was with them, and it was visible. But now they've become indistinguishable from the world around them, all the while still carrying on their religious traditions. Again, thank goodness we're not doing that. There was a time in our nation... Your parents, if you're old enough, your parents may be able to tell you about this, or your grandparents, certainly. There was a time in our nation, and this sounds so foreign to our ears, but it's true. There was a time in our nation when the church was feared and respected by the average person, saved or unsaved. There was a time, I've been told, When a minister would walk into a barbershop or a store, even the unsaved people would stand up in reverence. By the way, y'all take a cue from that when I come in here every (laughs) day. You lazy lot, you. There was a time in our country when even unbelievers recognized God's presence and power in the church, even if they didn't believe it, even if they'd never darkened the door of a church, there was a holy, quiet respect and reverence for what was going on with those people. Now, 
Church has tried so hard for so long to become relevant to the culture, to become cool and progressive and inclusive. And all of those efforts have led us to where? They've led us to the point where the church no longer has influence in the world at all. It's lost. It's gone. Studies will show you and I live in the first generation in recorded history where when unsaved people are searching for spiritual truth, they no longer come to the church to find it. We're not even on the list. They search everything else. They don't come here. It's not the world's fault, by the way. That's the church's fault. This is what was going on back then. Same thing. I wonder, just before we move on to the better chapters here, I wonder, forget about our church for a minute. Can others look at your life and my life and see the presence of God? Now, believe me, I'm not standing up here saying I've got it all together and I'm doing it all right, but boy, that's my heart's desire. Is it yours? that others would look at you and go, man, there's something about her. I just, I got to go find out. How, how did that family weather that brutal storm that they went through? How did they weather that with such strength and hope and peace? I don't understand. How does that guy at the, in the other office there, how does he get chewed out by his uh, uh, boss his uncaring boss, and yet he still works hard and shows love and is faithful. How, how in the world? Why doesn't that guy cheat on his expense report like we do? Why did those neighbors come and bring us a meal and bring us some cash to help us through that hard time when they hardly know us? Why would they do that? See, we are called to be a different people. We're called to be a holy people. It's even stressed in the New Testament so that when unbelievers look at us, when they encounter us and engage us, they will see God. I'm not talking about you know, singing a cappella out of a 300-year-old hymn book to them or something. I mean just in practical, everyday interactions. Do they see God in us? Well, so the book of Hosea so far, you know, it's, it's pulled the curtain back. And it's allowed us to see the, the terrifying judgments of God upon sin. And we can, as I said, we can walk away from this with, uh, you know, a bit of a grudge and say, wow, that's really harsh of God. doesn't seem fair. Well, listen to last week's message. Maybe that'll help if you weren't here. But what we've seen in all of these judgments, actually should bring us to a place of sober awareness of the holiness of God. And it should cause us to bow before him in the right kind of fear. Everything we've looked at so far, all of these hard things, all of these impending judgments... What they should do to us is they should remind us that one day, possibly very soon, we're going to die, and we will stand before God. 
And friend, if you are not in Christ, you are going to be the recipient of worse judgment than this. Where do you stand on this? You see, what what this look at these judgments should do is cause us to shake in our shoes and go, I, I have been underestimating God's holiness and my sinfulness. And now I see myself in his light a little better than I ever did before. I see how he must judge sin. I see how horrific those judgments are. And God, I want to come to you and I want to bow before you. I want you to make me new in Christ. God's judgments are certain. They are just and they are eminent. But thankfully, the book of Hosea not only shows us God's impending judgment, it also shows us God's promised hope. It reminds us that behind the the dark storm clouds of judgment, the sunshine of God's hope is beaming down. It makes me think of Lamentations. Anybody read Lamentations this week? Nope. Okay. Lamentations 3 says, For the Lord will not cast off forever. This is verse 31 and 32. The Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. What God is saying to his people in this book of Hosea is, although you have abandoned me, I have not abandoned you. Though you've turned your back on me, I will not turn my back on you. Yes, I have to discipline, but I will never forsake you. My compassion is there for you. My my mercy is there for you. And so what we see God doing to Israel and what he's still doing to us today is offering a personal invitation for them to return to him. And I really want you to focus in on this. God is offering to these rebellious people a personal invitation to return to him. This discipline that God had to bring to his wayward children was never what he wanted to do. But even though he had to dispense judgment, listen, it's important to know that that judgment was dispensed within the bounds of his love. It wasn't reckless judgment. It wasn't knee-jerk judgment. You ever judge one of your kids wrongly? Man, that stinks, doesn't it? You punish the wrong kid? I never did, but Sandy all the time. That's true as far as you know. I mean, look, um, no godly parent looks forward to disciplining their child. But what a godly parent will often do, what what Sandy and I tried to do, and and we, we didn't do it perfectly, but often before and after discipline, we would sit down with our kids and we would let them know before the discipline and after the discipline that this is being done in love. 
and I love you. And I understand when the kids are like, oh, yeah, some kind of love. But you know what? They're older now, 28 and 25. They remember that. And they're kind of at the age now where they're like, hmm, I think I appreciate that now. Discipline was surrounded in our love for them. So even when it hurt, they felt secure. God does the same thing here in the closing chapters of Hosea. As I said, chapters 12 and 13 in the middle of these last four chapters contain his discipline. But before and after that, in chapters 11 and 14, God goes out of his way to let Israel know how much he loves them. These are beautiful chapters. I hope I can somehow do them justice in these closing minutes. I'll just give you a sample. Just listen to the tenderness of these words of the God of heaven. Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. We see the fulfillment of this in Matthew 2, when Mary and Joseph had to flee to Egypt with baby Jesus. Verse 3, I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. Every one of you parents remembers the time when you stood behind your little child and they held their arms up and you held their hands and you walked behind them and you taught them to walk. This is the picture. God is reminiscing here. He's looking through the old photo albums, as it were, and he sees the pictures and I'm sure tears must well up in his eyes as he, he now glances above the book and he looks and sees these rebellious children. And he looks back at this old blurry black and white photograph of him holding their hands and teaching them to walk. Of him stooping down and feeding them like you've fed that little one in the high chair. We see God here as such a loving, doting father taking such good care of his child. And yet that child grew up and forgot his love. And actually, to make it even more painful than that, they not only forgot his love, but they turned their love to others and loved them instead. You know, it would be like, imagine fathers. Imagine if uh, your son, let's say, who was not quite old enough to drive, if he came to you and said, Dad, would you take me to the mall on Saturday? I, I want to buy a present. The dad, knowing that this coming Sunday is Father's Day, smiles to himself and thinks, oh, that's sweet. <laughs> he wants to buy me a present. Of course, son, of course I will. And so he takes his son to the mall that Saturday, and he patiently waits in the car. He says, son, you go do what you need to do. Son comes out with a big bag, and they drive home, and that Sunday on Father's Day, the, the family's leaving the church service, and the son says, hey, Dad, um, could you drive me to Mr. Wilson's house this afternoon? And Dad's a bit puzzled and says, well, well, sure, son. 
They're friends of the family. And, and so that afternoon, when the son's ready, uh, the dad drives the son over to Mr. Wilson's house. He pulls in the driveway and parks, and the boy reaches around behind the seat and pulls out a big present wrapped nicely, and he gets out of the car and runs to the door. He rings the doorbell, and Mr. Wilson comes to the door, and the boy hands him the gift and says, Happy Father's Day, Mr. Wilson. I love you. father's sitting in the car, puzzled, confused, hurt by this. The boy never says a word to his dad about Father's Day. Well, it's a silly illustration. And yet, silly as it may be, that's exactly what God's people have been doing to him as their father. They've rejected his love. They refuse to acknowledge him as their father. They're now turning to others instead And God is deeply hurt by this. It's one of the things I love about the Bible. It's one of the things I think that it's just another one of those small little checkboxes for me that makes me know this book is not made up by men. Because God is vulnerable in his word. He shows us his pain. God is deeply wounded by this. We see this throughout the book of Hosea. But even after he considers destroying Israel, he suddenly says in verse 8 of chapter 11, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I give you up? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And God continues expressing his love to these wayward people and inviting them to return to him. And that's where the final chapter, chapter 14, comes in. And in this chapter, God tells his people exactly how to return to him. By the way, did you know that we can't return to God on our own terms? There's a way to do this. I'm not talking about formulas or anything like that. But God makes it clear here in Hosea 14 exactly what this needs to look like. And I want to close with these three points. I didn't really know how to word all these. I've uh, changed them a lot. But I've tried to boil it down to just three simple things. First of all, There must be a coming back. There must be a coming back. Hosea 14.1 O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. See, the only way that broken fellowship with God can be renewed and restored is if we are willing to turn from the path we are on. There must be repentance. Repentance sounds like a fancy church word. It simply means to change direction. When you repent, you change your mind. You turn around. You go, whoa, I'm headed for a cliff. I'm going to repent and turn around. There must be repentance. There must be a turning. This is why churches or evangelists who only preach 
God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life are sending people to hell. Does God love you? Of course he does. Does God want the best for you? Of course he does. But that's not the gospel. The gospel always, always, always calls people to repent. John the Baptist came preaching a message of love. Nope. Repent, he yelled, you brood of vipers. Repent. The gospel always includes repentance, turning back to God. There must be a coming back. The prodigal son, you know, got all cocky and arrogant, and he rebelled against his father. He said, give me what's mine. I want it now. And he took it all, and he left home, and he went out and lived a riotous lifestyle, the Bible says. But eventually, as is always the case, the bottom fell out of his life. I so often as a pastor just have to wait for that call. You plead with a person. You plead with them. You plead with them. What you're doing is going to hurt you bad. Please turn around. Nope. Month goes by, year goes by, two years goes by. I'll get the call eventually. Come help. It's not fun anymore. The bottom fell out of my world. I need help. It's okay. It's all right. We all learn the hard way sometimes. The prodigal son went off, and man, he was having a great life until the bottom fell out. And Luke 15, 17 says this, but when he came to himself or when he came to his senses, he said, I'll say a nice little prayer and hopefully it'll fix things. No, 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 no. He had to turn. There had to be a coming back. He said, I will arise and go to my father. Verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. He had to make the decision to return to the Father. And that's what God is telling Israel to do, inviting Israel to do, and inviting every one of us to do. It's still true for every one of us today. There must be a coming back. You cannot follow God and stay where you are at the same time. You cannot continue on your path and be a servant of God at the same time. Number two, there must be a bowing down. Hosea 14.2, take words with you. I love that old phrase. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all our iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifice of our lips. God is actually having to tell his people what to say, because on our own, we don't even know how to pray for repentance. Most of our prayers consist of, Lord, bless me. Lord, provide for me. Lord, protect me. But in order to restore our broken relationship with God, we must be willing to take responsibility for our sin, to own up to it, to confess it before the Lord. There can't be any glossing over. We can't come back to God in general terms. If we've sinned specifically, we must come back to God. There must be a bowing down to him. In other words, a humbling before him and confess and say, God, I am guilty of A, B, C. Please forgive me of A, B, C. I'm letting those things go. Luke 15, 21. 
The next verse, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Wow, something's different about this boy now. Uh, He doesn't have the arrogance he had before. Now he's bowing down before his father in humble brokenness. True restoration with God requires a coming back. It requires a bowing down. And finally, number three, it requires a letting go. Hosea 14.3, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. See, in order for our broken fellowship with God to be restored and renewed, we must come to the place where we're willing to let go of and renounce everything else we've trusted in, everything else we've turned to for uh, strength and affirmation and love and security. God's people had turned to worldly nations to save them. They were depending on their military power to protect them. They were praying to idols to bless them. But it's impossible to ever truly be restored to God if we're still holding on to and looking to anything else to save us, to protect us, or to bless us. God says you have to denounce everything you've put your trust in and trust only in me. You and I don't, hopefully, don't bow down to wooden or stone idols in our backyard or our living room. And so it's easy for us to um, distance ourselves from this, to comfortably push back and go, well, those people, they were idol worshipers. You know, as someone once said, the human heart is an idol-making factory. And this is one of the dangers of reading a text like this is, is we can so comfortably say, well, those primitive people, you know, they were so dumb. They were worshiping things carved out of stone. I don't do that. No. But if we're honest, we'd have to admit that there have been times in our life for all of us when we have to say, I've put my trust in my job. I've put my trust in my spouse i put my trust in my intellect. i put my trust in my education. i put my trust in my money, etc., etc., etc. But where are you now on this? Have you ever said to God, Lord, I, I'm turning, I'm coming to you, I'm bowing down in repentance and confession, and I denounce every worldly thing I've put my trust in. I'm declaring that my help comes only from you. Forgive me for turning to those other things. And what happens when we return to the Lord that way? Hosea 14, 4. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like the trees of Lebanon. His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. There's so much more here than a picture of God just barely restoring those people who come back to him. Okay, I'll let you in, but just across the threshold, 
And you have to live in that second-class Christian status now for the rest of your life. I'll barely take care of you now. I'll barely give you enough to survive. That's not what God says. God says, if you come back to me like I've asked you to, you're going to find new life and vitality and fruitfulness and blessing. It's going to be poured out upon you. What a picture of God's gracious love. Wow. That's exactly where God wants us to be. So I say in closing, I just wonder, you know, maybe someone here today, maybe someone online, maybe you've strayed away from the Father's house. I want you to know, God is calling you back right now. Maybe you've made a lot of choices you regret. Maybe sin has taken you down a path that has left you surrounded by ruin and heartache. And you sit this morning in the pig pen, just like the prodigal son, and you look around and you're starting to come to your senses. And you're going, what am I doing here? I was not made for this. Back at my father's house, there's plenty to eat. There's rejoicing and merriment. Here? What am I doing here? Maybe that's you this morning. Well, this morning you've heard a warning from God of his impending judgment, but you've also received an invitation of hope to return to him. I want you to know this is your opportunity right now to return to him and receive the hope and forgiveness that he offers. Not tomorrow, not next week, not at a better time. The Bible says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. What will you do with this moment? Now, I urge you not to waste it. I urge you to take advantage of this moment. And Hosea concludes his book with this one final verse by urging you to do the same thing. Look at this final verse, Hosea 14, 9. He says, who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is discerning? Let him know these things. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Hey, this is the call that goes out to every one of us. You know, it's interesting. The world didn't want the prodigal son back after he lost everything. They didn't want him back, but God did. The father wanted him back. He was his son. He loved him with an everlasting love. In fact, the father, when he saw him coming over the horizon, ran to meet him, fell on his neck and kissed him, embraced him. And the son began his rehearsed speech. Oh, Lord, Father, I'm I'm not worthy to be called your son. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. Just make me as one of your hired servants. The father said, shh, no, no, none of that. You're my son. And he yells out, hey, guys, bring a robe, bring a ring, bring some sandals, start a feast. We're having a party. My son who was lost has been found. My son who was dead is alive. There's going to be rejoicing. 
We're so blessed to have a father who loves us this much. We've never known love like this anywhere else. A love that longs to take us back, to restore us, to revive us, to bless us again, even after we've strayed so far. Do you need to come back to him today? Will you? Let's pray. I don't always remember to say this, but I certainly want to make it clear that during these closing songs is your time to respond to God. I always wait at the back. If I can help you with anything, all you have to do is slip out of your seat and come back and see me. Ladies, we have someone at the back for you as well. Father, we commit this moment to you. There's nothing I can do or say that's clever enough to draw people to salvation. And so I leave it up to your Holy Spirit to do so. Lord, if there are those who are lost this morning, reveal their lostness to them. Convict their heart of their sin. And bring them to yourself in repentance, I pray. Lord, for those who know you, who are saved, who are your children, but they've chosen a bad road. They've drifted. They've wandered like we all have. God, help them to know that they are not being condemned, that we love them, that we want to come alongside them and help lift them up and get back together on the right path and walk side by side again. Lord, draw those people to yourself this morning, I pray. Be gracious to us in your forgiveness and your restoration, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time... May God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see.